Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series called Who Is This God? A study of Exodus 34, 6-7. Through this important scripture, we'll learn that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Thanks for joining us. When I think about God, a lot of things come to mind. I had trouble narrowing down the question, actually, because God has so many attributes. Um, You know, I think of Him as a protector, as a rescuer. Um, I just, I think about Him as a good father who's always there for his children. In working at Refuge Ranch, it's really fun because I get to be the hands and feet of a God who reaches out to rescue his people, and so, especially kids. Um, And it's been really amazing to be able to do some of that work uh, that God calls us to do in reaching out for the vulnerable and um, and the poor of spirit. And these are just attributes that I see that God has and that I feel like I've really been called to do as well. Five to ten years ago, I think I would have said that I see God as someone a little bit more distant. I feel like the last few years I've learned a lot about how God has rescued the Israelites over and over again. And knowing that I'm a child of God and I need His grace and His rescuing, um, that story has become very real to me, I guess, in the last five to ten years. But my mom has also been a huge influence on the way that I view God. She's someone who will fight for the people that she loves, and that's an attribute of God that I see in her and that I've seen in her since I was young and even to this day. The way that I think about God is probably the most important way that I think. So my faith is the lens through which I view everything else in life. And I mean, a huge part of that is the person of God and who I see God to be. So I don't, I feel like I see my whole life through the lens of who God is. Thank you uh, to Kiera and everyone else who's been a part of uh, sharing stories in the past six weeks. I don't know about you, but that's just been mutually edifying for uh, this body of believers to get to hear who God is to different individuals in our church family. Uh, If you don't know me, my name's Luke. I'm one of the uh, uh, ministry leaders here at our church, lead our high school ministry. And today we're going to be concluding a series that we've been in called Who Is This God? And the pursuit of an answer to that question is perhaps one of the greatest undertakings of any of our lives. That is, to try to figure out and to live uh, who God is and what God is like. And as Kiera said, to have our entire lives be shaped by our perception of who God is. To have the person of God be a lens through which we live and act and move in the world. And so each week we've been coming back to this contention of A.W. Tozer, who wrote, if you're following in your notes, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most important thing about us. And to answer the question, who is this God? We've been examining Exodus chapter 34. Because in that passage, God paints a self-portrait of sorts. He comes to Moses 
on the mountain, and he reveals something about who he is and his nature, his attributes, his character. He gives to Moses a self-disclosure, right? He paints the self-portrait. Now, if I were to paint a self-portrait, you can be sure it would pass uh, only a passing resemblance to what I actually look like. It would not be a fully accurate portrayal of who I am. But when God paints a self-portrait, when he gives utterance to his own nature and to his own attributes, what we have is a supremely trustworthy declaration of who God actually is. We trust it because it comes from his own mouth. If you're following in your notes, the authoritative revelation of what God is like is God's own word. So this is what God says about himself to Moses in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And it's going to be on the screen in your notes uh, if you would read this aloud with me. And he, Yahweh, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Those verses have been our meeting place for the past several weeks, but God's self-disclosure in Exodus 34 does not end there. He goes on later in the same passage to describe one additional attribute of his nature and character. So today as we conclude our look at the character of God, I want us to read on just a little bit further in this same story. I'm going to read these uh, verses to you. This is uh, a final moment of self-disclosure that God has for Moses in Exodus 34, beginning in verse 8. It says, Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped, right? God has just proclaimed this, his name to him, so Moses bows down to the ground at once and he worships. And then, Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Like, lead us into the promised land. Although this is a stiff-necked people, an obstinate people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance, And the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all of the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down the altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. So there it is. One additional attribute to add to our list of the character and the nature of God. Jealous. We've talked in this series about Hesed, the steadfast, loyal love of the Lord, and now we're introduced to Elkanah, the jealous God, the God who is jealous. Now, I know for most of us, we're, we're quite interested in worshiping the God who is love. That's very appealing. We'll worship 
the God who is just, no problems there. The compassionate God, yes, merciful God, sovereign God, powerful God, we're all for it. But the jealous God, are are we sure about that? For many of us, thinking of God as jealous can be the insurmountable obstacle to faith, a barrier, a roadblock to belief in the goodness and the worthiness of worshiping this God. Uh, Of course, many of you know of Oprah Winfrey. She's the famous talk show host and philanthropist and many other things. And uh, she's uh, gone on record a number of times sharing her own spiritual journey with different folks. And as she tells her own spiritual story, um, she would say that her, her departure from what we would consider Orthodox Christian faith began in church. She went to a, uh, a church service one time and she was there listening to the preacher and the preacher was, was going on. He was huffing and puffing about these attributes of God. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent, right? He, he's all the omnis and he's good and he's, and he's worthy and he's this and he's that. And then he comes to jealous. And she, she says that when he talked about God and, and said that God was jealous, she, something in her just, just shifted, just broke, just changed. How could this God, who is all of these things, who, who's the most powerful and glorious and honorable being in all the universe, who created all things, how could this God be jealous? Jealous of who? What is there to be jealous of? I mean, God is the author of of life, the giver of every good thing, the the sovereign Lord of the whole universe, and jealousy just seemed to her such a petty, human, insecure sort of emotion. Is this really who God is, and if so, is he really worthy of our worship? And she's not alone in that. Similarly, Richard Dawkins, the famous uh, spearhead of the new atheist movement, He too was deeply troubled by the idea of a a jealous God. He wrote in his book, The God Delusion. He said, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. And there's more where that came from. Dawkins goes on. Dawkins uh, imagines Elkanah like a possessive and abusive ex-boyfriend of sorts. Like jealousy is a sort of toxic trait to be aware of and to avoid. This is a red flag in the character of God, something for us to be wary about. And this understanding of jealousy is not just the opinion of of, um, people who were critical of, of scripture or people who are outside of the church. Many of us in the church struggle with understanding the meaning and the goodness of this divine attribute. If I were to say to you, you sure are a jealous person, would you take that as a compliment? No, of course not. We'd say, what do you mean I'm a jealous person? What is that about? Why does he think that? I'm not jealous. That's not me. I'm I'm content, right? Jealousy is probably one of the only attributes of God I can think of that we're, we're all trying not to emulate. None of us want to be considered jealous people. That doesn't seem like a very positive thing, right? Jealousy exists in our minds in this family of negative traits like envy and greed and discontentment, covetousness. We might think of a jealous person as possessive or insecure. So it doesn't really make sense immediately in our minds to speak of God as jealous. I've heard of uh, people praying 
you know, to, to be more like God, right? To, to develop the character and the virtues of, of the Lord, to be Christ-like. You know, Lord, I, I want to be more like you. Please help me grow in love for others. Lord, I want to be like you. Please help me grow in compassion. Lord, help me grow in my, my, um, uh, my desire for justice. Help me grow in wisdom, right? James says, yeah, ask the Lord for wisdom. He'll give it to you, right? We, we pray for these things to grow in our integrity, to be formed in the way of Jesus. I have never heard anyone pray, Lord, I want to be like you. Please help me become more jealous, I've really been struggling with my lack of jealousy in my life, and, and I want to just reflect your jealousy. Lord, help make me more jealous. Go to life group next time and ask that of your group. Say, hey, I'm struggling with this. Please pray for me. I want to be more jealous like God. See how that goes. Right? This is not something we immediately run to as something that fills us with a joy in the Lord and the goodness of God. And so because for many of us, these negative imaginations are our starting place for thinking about jealousy, what I would like to try and do with our time this morning is reintroduce ourselves to Elkanah, to, re- to retrieve from the scriptures a proper understanding of divine jealousy and to rehabilitate our perception of who God is so that when we hear the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, we can find hope and joy in that truth. So to that end, I want us to explore this morning two questions. First, what does jealousy actually mean? And then secondly, why is this good news? Why is it good news that God is a jealous God? So to begin with, what does jealousy mean? I don't know any other way to do this than to go to grammar school for a second here. And we've done this a couple of times throughout the series where we've looked at particular words and language and the fullness of what they mean in context. So I want us to do that with the term jealous that shows up in Exodus 34, 14, when God proclaims his name as jealous. So jealous is a translation of the Hebrew word kanah, hence el kanah, the Lord is jealous. So if you want to know what the biblical understanding of kanah is, here's how we do that. You look at every instance of it in context, and you see how it's used in each of those places, and then you kind of survey all the different usages, and you say, okay, here it can mean this, here it can mean this, here it can mean this, Right? And so we're trying to get a sense of the fullness of what does this actually mean and be able to distinguish kana as the scriptures use it in reference to God from our own beginning imaginations of what we think jealousy means, right? So what does kana mean? Here's what you find when you study this, uh, this word in the Old Testament. Various forms of the word kana appear 85 times throughout the Hebrew scriptures, what, what we as Christians call the Old Testament. And there are three English words that are used to translate kana. One of them, of course, as we've said, is jealous. But kana is also translated as zealous, with a Z, like, like passionate, right? Uh, and it is, uh, it's also translated as uh, envious, envious. Now, most of the uses of kana describe human emotions, like you and I would, would think of when we feel jealousy or we feel envy for somebody or something that they have, right? So, for example, uh, Joseph's brothers are said to feel kana toward him. He's having all these dreams, and these dreams are saying that he's going to be awesome, and they're not going to be as awesome, and they're going to be bowing down to him, and they're freaking out about this, right? So they enact their kana, they sell him off into slavery, they deceive their father about it. It's a whole dysfunctional family situation, and all of that is born from kana, envy, jealousy, right? We're familiar with this emotion. You know what it's like? If you ever heard somebody who has a beautiful singing voice, or maybe, you know, your neighbor who's got a new Tesla parked in the driveway, and you're feeling a little bit of kana. Like, why isn't that me? Why wasn't I blessed with these gifts? 
little old me. I don't have what they have. And you feel a sense of insecurity about that and lack and desire for what somebody else has been given or gifted with. That's, that's the envy. That's the covetous side of canal. We know what this is like. Likewise, the psalmist confesses, this is Psalm 73, he says he envied the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. He envied the arrogant. He canah. Canahed the wicked, right? Envy. He's like, people are getting away with stuff that I would really like to be getting away with, but I don't seem capable of that. And I feel like I'm missing out here. I'm a little bit envious of what's going on in their life. You know what this is like too. You're driving down the road on, on veterans out here somewhere on Wabash, right? Chatham Road. And somebody just flies by you 20 miles an hour over the limit. And the thought that flashes in your mind is, I hope there's a cop up there, <laughs> right? You're thinking, I could never do that. If I did that, there would be a cop sitting at the, in the next intersection. I would get busted for going six over. Where is the justice in the world, right? Some of you don't know what that's like because you're the guy who's taken off 20 miles an hour. But for the rest of us, right, you feel kana in those moments. I'm envious of the wicked. They seem to be getting away with stuff, living the life I kind of secretly wish that I might be able to live. So that's what a lot of Kana is, right? About one-third of the instances of Kana, though, describe God. One-third of them describe God. And what's interesting is that when Kana is used to describe God, English translations never use the word envious. Never. They don't translate Kana with the word envious, and that's a smart move because it reflects a theological truth that's crucially important for us to grasp. And that's that God lacks nothing. He lacks nothing. He's not in need. He, he's not uh, uh, insecure. He's not in a kind of codependent relationship with his people. He doesn't experience discontentment. No one possesses something that God wants, but he can't have, and so he's upset about it. These things are never true of God. Yahweh has never been envious of idols. Yahweh has never thought, man, Baal, he just gets all the glory. Zeus, oh, man, I wish I could have what that guy has. What's a deed he got to do to get some worship from these people? Right? God, God has never had that flash through his mind in that way. He's not codependent with us. He's not needy. He's not lacking. He's not insecure. If you're following in your notes, God is entirely self-sufficient. And thus, envy is impossible with God. In theological terms, we call that the doctrine of the aseity of God, the aseity, the self-sufficiency of God. Paul speaks to this in Acts chapter 17. He goes before the Athenians and he says, the Lord is the maker of heaven and earth and everything is, is from him. So he is not, uh, he doesn't dwell in temples made by human hands he is not served by human beings as if he needed anything. He himself is the giver of life and breath and everything else. That's the aseity of God, the self-sufficiency of God, which means God has no envy in him. The jealousy of God does not mean some petty emotion born from lack or insecurity. That's not what we're talking about when we attribute jealousy to God, when we say that God is el Kana. So some of us are then wondering, okay, well, why use a word that doesn't seem to mean what we think that it means to talk about God. This is confusing. I, I partly agree with you. It is. 
And that's why much of the time when we're talking about God, we use the word zealous because we're talking about his, his passionate love for his people, that's exclusive relationship. But no matter what word we use, there's, there's something important I want us to realize. All theological description, all the words that we can use to talk about who God is, have a limitation. They can't ever fully capture and contain him as he is. At best, they approximate. They get us close. They shape our imaginations. They speak something true, but it's not the fullness of the thing itself, right? Let me, let me show you what I mean. I want to show you a photo that uh, my wife Mara took. We were on vacation uh, in Yosemite, and there's this there's this part, you come out of this tunnel when you're driving through. If you've ever been there, you, you probably know this. It's one of the most photographed places in America. Um, and, and you come out of this tunnel and you just kind of park your car and you, you look out um, over this railing at, at the Yosemite Valley and it's just, I mean, look at that. It's, it's unreal, it's unbelievable, it's breathtaking. You've got um, El Cap there on the left, Half Dome's way in the distance in the middle there that you can see. It just, it blows you away. One of the most incredible things I've ever seen. And it's, it's a phenomenal uh, photo that, that Mara took. Um, I, I love to look at that. I've had that as my you know, wallpaper on my computer for a while, my desktop, right? But here's the thing. I come back from this trip and I'm showing some photos to family and, and friends, right? Like, like you do. And they're indulging me as if they care. And it's really important when we, in reality, have already seen it all on Facebook and it's whatever. But, but they're indulging us, right? And we're, we're talking about describing the moments behind each of the photos, giving the backstory. And inevitably, I come to this one phrase at the end of this long spiel about how awesome the photo is. And I say this and I say this after probably every photo, every trip, and you say the same thing. The photo just doesn't do it justice. You had to be there, Right? Like, as good as that photo is, it it can't fully capture the experience of the thing itself. It's not that it's an inaccurate photo. That really is the Yosemite Valley. I mean, that's what it looks like. But it's just not the same. Until you've been there and you've seen it with your own eyes, you've you've really taken it in. Then then you've had the full experience of it. And, And this is what theological language is like. It's accurate. It gives us a real portrayal, a true understanding of who God is, but it's accommodated language and it approximates and it doesn't fully capture the fullness and the essence of who God is. We're limited in our ability to do that with the English language. As as good as a gift as language is, it's not the fullness of God's own nature and attributes. So maybe on occasion in scripture, jealous is as good as we can get from an English word, to to this particular attribute of God at times. And that's okay, and here's why. If you're following your notes, God gets to redefine our words for him rather than our words redefining who God is. This is an important principle. As you seek to understand who God is in the scriptures, you may read something and be a little confused about that. Say, that doesn't quite make sense to me. I have a question. What does that really mean? And we always go from the text to our imagination of God, not import our imagination of God into the scriptures, right? God gets to redefine our words for him rather than the other way around. So if the jealousy of God is not like human envy or or lack or insecurity, then what does it really mean? And it's here where we can start to turn to the good news of a jealous God. 
if you're following in your notes, to say that God is a jealous God is to say that God wants to be in exclusive relationship with you. That's what it means. You know what the Bible's favorite metaphor is for the relationship that God has to humans? It's marriage. Marriage. The whole big thread throughout the entire scriptures comes back to it again and again. The favorite image, the favorite idiom, the favorite metaphor of the scriptures for God's relationship to us is marriage. Aren't you glad that it's not dating? Aren't you glad that it's not tender? Oh, thank the Lord, right? I mean, he's, he's desired something a little more committed for us, a little more loyal, a little more steadfast, a little more enduring, a little more exclusive. There's real power in the kind of love that God has for us because it is rooted, as he tells Moses in Exodus 34, in the covenant that he's going to make with his people. It's a promise. It's a vow. That's where it comes from. So God poetically, again and again, depicts his covenant with Israel as a marriage. A great example of this is Ezekiel 16, verse 8. God is speaking through the prophet, and he says this, Later I I passed by, and when I looked at you, that's Israel, and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. That last line is, is fundamental for our understanding of the God who is jealous. You became mine. I know we can think of being possessive as a negative character trait, and in some instances, surely it is. But also, surely, there are things of which we have every right to be possessive of, and it is good that we are possessive. What mother in this room is not possessive of her children? You're not sharing. Maybe sometimes you wish you could share, but most of the time, you're not sharing. They're your kids, right? They don't belong to anybody else. You protect them. You contend for them. You look out for them. You help them. You come to their aid because they're yours. You're passionate. You're zealous for them. They belong to you and to nobody else. So they're your responsibility. That's the jealousy of God. You became mine. We do this in marriage too, right? We take vows that say to have and to hold. We're forsaking all others. This is the good possessiveness of God. Can you see this? Is it starting to take shape for you, the source of God's jealousy? It's love. It's love. If you're following in your notes, jealousy is just the expression of God's fierce, passionate, relentless love. And it's holy. And it's good. It is God's passionate desire to have a people who bear his name. That desire causes him to fiercely judge and discipline his people. And it's that same desire that causes him to relentlessly pursue and redeem his people. One and the same, the same source. Elkanah is love. This is the truth of the scriptures, the truth of the gospel. So we have to understand, it's not that God is jealous of you or anything else. No, no, God is not jealous of you. God is jealous for you. He is jealous for your sake. In the scriptures, this is in your notes, God is jealous for three things. The scriptures teach us that God is jealous for his name, for his house, and for his people. 
his name, his house, and his people. That's what we're told that God is jealous for. Why? Because these are all the things that are bound up in his covenant with his people. His name, his reputation, his honor, right? The covenant community itself, the land that he's going to give to them. These are the things that God is zealous or jealous for. So then what provokes God to jealousy is infidelity. You can see this all throughout the prophetic writings, right? The breach of covenant on Israel's part. They're constantly trying to keep their options open. They see God as as one option among many, and they can kind of play the field, and God's not having any of it. This is what provokes him to jealous wrath on occasion. The love that he has for his people, he wants it to be exclusive. He desires to compete with no rival for our affection, attention, and allegiance. He won't stand for it. God repeatedly communicates this through uh, many of his prophets. And in one particular instance, I I love this because it, it just shows us how much God loves a good illustration. He has a guy named Hosea go and marry a prostitute. This is actually what happens. Hosea 1, 2 gives the rationale. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Man, God does love a good illustration, right? And again and again, he sends the prophets who communicate the same thing. Come back to me, Israel. Come back to me, Israel. Come back to me, Israel. The thing that they're communicating on behalf of God again and again is God saying, I give and I give and I get nothing back. Like, like, where is the worship and the love and the honor that should exist in the covenant relationship that we have together? The Greek word that scripture uses to translate kana is zealous, which of course is where we get our English word zealous. And since Eden, God has been seeking people who are passionately zealous and devoted fervently to his name, to his house, to his people. He wants people who are as desiring of him as he is of, uh, of them, right? He wants people who are passionately devoted. And since Eden, we have messed that up, right? As in Eden, so in Springfield. God provides for us, but we rebel. God calls and we hide. God pursues and we cover. This is the story of the scriptures. This is the story of the gospel. God is faithful and we are faithless. And I I don't know about you. I know this is true in my own life. I know that there are times I am far more zealous for my own name and reputation than I am for the name and the reputation and the glory of God. I know that there there are moments when the reality of my inner life is I want to do big things and find success and and like live a great, successful life and have people applaud me. But I'm sometimes caught up in working for my own glory, trying to make a name, concerned with my own honor, zealous for my own fame, and I'm missing what God would have for me. I'm trying essentially to use God for the glory of my name rather than God using me for the glory of his. Does anybody else know what this is like? We're so caught up in our own stories sometimes. And I just, I just wonder, I've been hearing the Lord speak that to me in, in the past couple of weeks as I've been preparing for today. I wonder, what is the Lord speaking to you? I would contend that there are probably some of us, many of us in this room, 
who if we were sensitive to the spirit, we would sense the Lord seeking to get our attention and saying, I'm giving all of myself to you, but you're holding out on me. I've gone the distance and given you all that I have exclusively. I want to be with you, but you're keeping your options open. I'm giving you my all, but you're not giving me your all, not giving me your best. God is looking for a people who are zealous for him. Many of us, we want God to treat us with the benefits of a spouse the faithfulness, the committedness, the goodness, right? The thoughtfulness, the attention. We want him to treat us like, like we're in a spousal relationship, like we're in a marriage, and we treat God like we're on a summer fling. Like, like we went to Fugion, we got a camp crush. My high school students know what that's about, right? Like you've got this, this little window, and it's, it's a passionate love affair, and then it's over. Or, or I'll reach out, you know, when I, when I need you, you, you'll be there. Your plan B If anything falls through, I got you, back pocket. God is desiring us to give all of ourselves to him as he has given all of himself to us. And some of us probably need to wake up to the fact that in our spiritual life, you've been trying to like casually date God and God's been like proposing again and again and he keeps getting turned down. And maybe we just need to to shift our imagination, shift our priorities, shift our level of commitment to give God all that he is worthy of and all that he deserves. But at the end of the day, all of us are still gonna have to face the reality, the fact that we just can't give God all that he deserves. We'll never be as zealous for his name as he is for us. We'll never contend for him the way that he contends for us. We'll never be able to give him his due. But I want us to see that the jealousy of God, uh, that's not a character trait that belongs to some emotionally unhealthy version of him. No, no, no. This jealousy of God, it finds its ultimate expression in Jesus himself. It finds its ultimate expression in the very revelation of Yahweh in Christ Jesus. And so here's what I want us to leave with, right? We can confidently and definitively answer the question, who is this God in a single word and name? Jesus And as I said at the very beginning of this message, you're following in your notes, the authoritative revelation of what God is like is God's own word. And I want you to write that down a second time. Yes, I know, it's not a mistake. And write it down and and capitalize that W because Jesus, as Paul says in Colossians, is the image of the invisible God. He's the fullness of deity living in bodily form. Hebrews tells us he's the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. And in John chapter two, we're told that Jesus one day, he entered the temple courts and he was consumed with zealous, with kanah for the Lord's house. And so he prophetically clears it, cleanses it, and then declares his own body as the house of God's presence on the earth. And so I think that when Moses stood on the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus, he recognized the presence of El Kanah in Christ Jesus. He had known him from before. Jesus is El Kanah. And because Christ was zealous for God's name, his house and his people, you and I now bear God's name. We dwell in his house. We belong to his people. So in view of that reality, I want to invite us and call us to worship, 
to have a moment where we just open our, our hearts, our minds, our mouths to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us praise, to adore, to confess who God is. So if you're carrying burdens this morning, if, if you're angry, if you're anxious, if you're sad, if whatever you may be going through, I would invite you to consider that maybe the nourishment that your soul needs in this moment is passionate, wholehearted, zealous worship for who God is and for what he has done for you. To worship the zealous God who has claimed you as his own. I invite you to stand with us and lift your voices as we sing and proclaim who God is. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website or find us on Facebook. Have a great day.